Spring. <laughs> Come back to the Comic Syllabus podcast where we read widely and dig deep in the worlds of graphic novels and comics. My name is Paul. I am an English teacher and I enjoy talking to you about um, stuff that I've been reading, uh, interested in hearing what you've been reading. Let's talk about what's good. Um, it's been a minute, but um, I'm, I'm trying to come back in full force here. We're going to talk today about uh, Aerosmith, which is uh, written by Kurt Busiek and drawn by Carlos Pacheco. Um, talk about that briefly, but uh, got a bit of a long run up to it where I talk about Usagi Yojimbo and Book of Boba Fett and uh, the Shadow Hero classic. Um, and then we get into Aerosmith. Uh, followed by some other things that I'm reading this week, and uh, I will touch on um, Discipline by Dash Shaw from New York Review of Books and Action Comics and Amazing Spider-Man, and um, and also some comics on Substack, including Molly Knox Ostertag's Darkest Night, and uh, as well as stuff that's on Solid and Ahmed's Copper Bottle, and uh, ultimately we will get to talking about Buckhead. Number one and two from Boom Studios, written by Shobo, with art by George Kamadias. Um, it's a long episode. It's rambling. <laughs> it's me <laughs> and just me. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. And uh, come right back. Get into this talk. All right. All right. Thanks for coming back to the um, Comic Syllabus podcast. It's been a minute, and um, I I wish that I had been able to come back sooner. Um, it might have been a sign of better times. Um, but I thank you for your patience and for the few and the proud who are supporters of the podcast through our Substack at comicssyllabus.substack.com. Um, or friends who are subscribers of the podcast, please uh, subscribe and rate and review wherever you find this uh, this podcast and other fine podcasts. Um, particularly through multiversitycomics.com and the Multiversity Comics Network of Podcasts, where we come from. Um, I, I meant to take a winter break. I certainly didn't mean to go in until late January, but here we are. Um, and uh, it's been a hectic and challenging month for <laughs> for all of us, um, but, it, but for me. And at the same time, at the end of last year, I had a lot of questions about this podcast and exactly where could we go um, to meet the needs of the audience that we have, uh, you, our um, precious listeners, um, as well as others um, who may potentially be interested in what we do here. And uh, and part of that is clarifying what exactly do we do here and having a firm sense of that so that we can proceed, you know, to, to, to um, promote and build and grow this podcast's effort. Well, I did get some, some feedback. Um, uh, from those of you who responded to the survey that I put out at the end of last year. And it was um, it was wonderful to hear from a lot of you. It was infirmi- affirming in many ways um, in, uh, of, of this, my sense that I think the best way for me to be guided is by the um, truest light of the questions and the things that interest me. I think if I do this podcast without the passion of my real engagement of um, talking about things that matter to me as a reader and as a person in this world, I just won't be able to bring um, much passion and enthusiasm to this. And I think that's probably what 
we need most of all um, that this isn't a chore, that it is um, a source of meaning and joy as we read together. So that's what I'm going to dedicate myself to. I had thrown out a couple options. Is it this that I try to cover or that? Is it, you know, reviews of new graphic novels? Is it comics that are coming out on shelves? Is it the, you know, expanding digital comics world? Um, or should I talk about, you know, past books? And, you know, um, those who did respond, um, responded uh, with their opinions. And I appreciated them so much. As I read each one, I took them to heart. And yet, if I listened to one, it would contradict exactly the preferences of the other. And sometimes as a teacher, when I give um, feedback, when I, or when I get feedback, when I give feedback forms and that's the kind of feedback I get, I know that I'm maybe doing lots of things wrong, without a doubt, but maybe doing some things right. So I am going to, um, I think, hold to what I said, which was, um, and has been the principle of this podcast, it's a belief that... Um, that in uh, in all arts and media, but you know, in very particular ways with comics, we can reflect and change the world, and um, and I think that there are important things that are happening in the world of comics that um, you know cross over into other media, and um, but all, but whether they do or not, they they cross over into our consciousness, into our narratives, into our grasp of the world, into our assessment of what's important and how we live. And that's um, and that's a reality for me. Um, I, I do feel this ongoing sense of of crisis and of where we are right now. Um, it is certainly the pandemic um, currently in an Omicron wave, and I've been unable to return to the podcast um, and return to writing for the, the Substack um, for the past month and a half. I'd say. Uh, both because of, you know, the holidays and needing rest restoration, but also because um, coming back, our schools, I am an English teacher, um, I work at a, you know, public school district and, uh, and also at a public university teaching teachers. Um, we're just facing a lot, as you all know so well. Um, you might know it because your own kids and your struggle with um, daycare or um, case numbers in your classrooms or kids being sent home or um, uh, shortage of staff um, and every industry and sector is feeling the hit right now, um, whether it's economically or in people's health or, um, frankly, folks we've lost um, or um, the, the insecurity of the times. Anyway, all that to say, in the times of crisis, as I've reflected on in increasingly in the last two years, um, it is our stories that sort of um, both hold us together <laughs> and in some ways tear us apart. And so the moral responsibility we have to attend to the stories we tell, the stories we entertain, as I talk about, as, I'll, as I'm sure I'll, I'll talk about throughout. Um, I've just started watching Station Eleven, um, a show that, uh, that really seems to be about um, the question of stories that we tell and that we live in times that are very much... Um, uh, you know, truth stranger than fiction. Um, and so we, we do live in some, some crazy times. Um, I hope you're well. Thank you for listening. Um, I, <laughs> I continue to read comics. Um, and so I'll talk today about some of the things that I've been reading. I want to highlight some old things, you know, um, I, I would say comfort food, except I, I don't know that they so much comforted me as they um, reafflicted me with the, um, you know, the, the depressing importance of being uh, um, 
you know, conscientious and cognizant of how I live. I want to talk about um, Aerosmith Beyond Enemy Lines. That's maybe the the title that I'll pop in the title of this episode. Um, Kurt Busiek, Carlos Pacheco, um, company out from Image Comics. That is new. Um, that is back. I have some reflections on Aerosmith. Um, and I want to talk about other things that I've been reading. Um, some things out this week and some things that I've just been picking up lately that I think are worth checking out. Uh, comics on on comic book stands, uh, maybe a graphic novel or two, as well as um, uh, some things that are 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 uh, on Substack. Some of the new comics out on Substack. So that's where we're going. Um, and I guess I want to start with the comfort food, <laughs> so called, because I found myself over winter break as uh, so my holidays were good, uh, some really um, cherished family time. I'm finding that um, in a, in order to live as people who serve others and put, uh, you know, community first, you, you have to, in a sense, put a sort of protective barrier around family. Um, sometimes uh, our family, and I mean my immediate family, my, my, my partner and my daughter and I, um, put ourselves, I think, in places where... We want to be near people. Uh, we want to be able to carry their, their their burdens with them and celebrate in the joys with them. But I think that that often makes us vulnerable to stresses, and sometimes those stresses we internalize, and then who we are uh, is not our best. And um, and so, you know, having uh, finding ways to um, set boundaries so that our family can 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 um, I think can live. I guess I'll put it this way to. To kind of get into what, what what I've been reading, to live honorably, I guess, uh, you know, honor is a funny word. Um, I think I have meanings of it that are sort of um, inherited from you know Chinese American culture, and um, and yet I I think there is still a uh, value in the word, in the sense that what honor does is it makes it keeps possible um, compassion, empathy, love, loyalty. And yet um, retains a moral sensibility that's not just anything goes. Um, you know, I think um, toleration and um, and compassion uh, are at the heart of it. And yet, I, I don't know that true toleration, true compassion, true sort of coexistence, um, truly honoring peace, can exist without, you know, um, without in a sense a, a kind of um, a, a standard of, of, of virtue. Um, and, and most importantly, that that's one that you hold to yourself to above all. Um, and then, uh, you know, being able to call a spade a spade when, um, you know, when evil or selfishness, um, exists, uh, which is not to say that you, uh, you know, then are justified at, um, criminalizing or policing people, uh, or even judging and evaluating as a lone individual or as a citizen, but at, that within communities, codes of honor um, can be oppressive. They are, but they also uphold something that is, you know, something that is always negotiated yet crucial for life. Um, which brings me to Usagi Yojimbo. Usagi Yojimbo is my comfort food. <laughs> and in the sort of... Um, I guess in the in the broader uh, you know uh, the sort of maybe dysfunctions that we live within in watching as you know voting rights continue to be um, uh, you know ebbed by 
uh, ironically, the failures of democracy, uh, as you know, climate crisis, as the the sort of horrendous response uh, from many sectors and angles to um, what the pandemic has revealed about how capable we are as as societies to um, look out for one another, um, to handle nuance, to handle complexity of information, to you know, prioritize um, the most vulnerable, like as these things happen in me and as I individually deal with my own issues and I certainly have them and our family's issues, I felt myself really wanting to anchor in certain kinds of stories and finding other ones really hard to anchor in, which brings me to Usagi Ojimbo, um, which will bring me to Boba Fett, which will bring me to an old one, the shadow hero, which will bring me to Aerosmith. So, so hang with me, y'all. Um, I, I think I found myself returning to Usagi Ojimbo as I often do in certain times when I think that my compass feels off. And that's what it felt like. I felt like the stresses of life, the stresses of the world collectively, you know, the ways that I was sort of absorbing them felt like they were making my compass come off. And um, the reason why I love reading Usagi Ojimbo which I don't know if this background is necessary, but Stan Sakai has been since 1984, I want to say, um, dedicated um, himself and his immense talents to telling the story of, of Usagi, who is a rabbit, <laughs> an anthropomorphized world, uh, uh, sorry, an anthropomorphized rabbit living in a world that is uh, Japan uh, of, you know, uh, of maybe a century and a half ago. Um, during the sort of samurai era of Japan. Uh, and Usagi, who was a, a yojimbo, sort of a, a wandering um, ronin character, used to be, you know, um, tied through all those, you know, honor codes of loyalty to a lord who was killed um, and then um, tries to maintain um, an honorable life in a situation where, um, though he's, you know, full of discipline and can sort of kill <laughs> kill a lot. There's a lot of killing in Usagi Uchimbo. Um, nonetheless, he is uh, he adheres so tightly to um, to that moral code, and there is nothing simplistic about it. Um, sometimes he's temperamental. Sometimes he's conflicted. Sometimes the people who ought to be the best um, are the worst, and sometimes the people who you least expect wind up acting most honorably in this in the sort of um, tales that um, Stan Sakai tells. And and you know anybody who's read Usagi, if you haven't, you really need to. Um, but if anybody who's read Usagi can can um, just you know you've know you know how Sakai is able to to sort of weave together a story whether it's something that is, um, you know, fable-like or whether it's a, a more extended narrative. And, you know, IDW, um, ever since the, the license sort of, or, or Sakai has sort of moved to IDW to have um, Usagi printed there, you know, after a, a periods of time with um, Dark Horse and then, of course, way back in the day with different publishers, Comico, is that right? Um, Fanographics and so on. Um, uh, s lately, since coming to IDW, there's been not only new Usagi, as Sakai continues to make new Usagi, um, but, but, uh, but also they've been uh, taking some of the early Usagi Yojimbo stories, coloring them 
and collecting them, uh, you know, reissuing them in color. And so we, we all get to sort of relive the presence of these really classic Usagi tales. And, and I mean that they're classic in the sense that they are, you know, classic, classics of comics and also classics in the sense of the way that the, um, I think it's called the Edo period in Japan, um, uh, involved something that we see in in you know American m- movies and media in westerns. This sense of a, um, a territorial dispute that um, could lead to rampant chaos and sometimes does, often does, if not for this presence of this honor code that must exist. You know, that not all subscribe to you know, but these codes of honor be you a samurai or uh, sort of on the flip side, a ninja or whatever, these codes bind people together. And there's something about Usagi where, you know, Usagi lives by an individual code and yet is also um, trying to, in a sense, exert and also be flexible with the, uh, <laughs> the, the questionable morality of others. Where do I need to step in and where do I need to step Uh, step back. (laughs) That's always kind of the question that each story and situation as Usagi wanders, you know, one place to another, or as the amassing forces of that Lord who are, who is, who has that conspiracy going on, you know, ultimately against the Shogun or, you know, whatever loyalty to, you know, this old friend or old acquaintance or hometown or whatever, you know, the, these, these different stories all sort of remix the moral questions that really force Usagi to have to um, stay on his uh, his toes, <laughs> his rabbit feet. And when I read Usagi Yojimbo, as I in a similar way that I respond to samurai movies, um, you know, Kurosawa movies and stuff like that, or or the American Western movies, I am always thinking about this um, dual perspective, where from within the perspective of those movies, I always I, I, I love about them that they often involve a hero, sometimes a lone hero, often a hero who, you know, has to come to recognize or come to be taught their dependence upon others. But, you know, this often sort of, you know, again, this lone wolf <laughs> um, who does not realize that they are actually interdependent with the cub that they that they uh, are traveling with. Um, but that there is the this, again, this code, um, this honor system uh, of values that binds them. Um, that's one side of it. And, and I think that becomes to me an important coping mechanism. Uh, it's not a, a sort of like, you know, philosopher's morality. It's a way of living. It's a way of coping. It's a way of moving through a world that would otherwise be uh, too chaotic for us to know where we stand or what to do. Um, but from an outsider's perspective, and I say that as a person who, you know, of Chinese descent, who there's um, in my own family's uh, heritage, a slightly interesting ambivalence about um, Japan, um, given a variety of, of histories. Um, and, and of course, with the American Western, you know, the, the sort of um, morality of cowboys, no matter how moral or immoral they might be, uh, still very rarely takes into account the um, the more profound morality of Western expansionism and manifest destiny 
and treatment of uh, the, the Indians, you know, uh, of natives. And so they are, you know, participants in this society that needs these codes of honor. Uh, and yet there's profound contradictions, you know, in this violence that often is right in front of their eyes all the time and yet um, hidden, in a sense, from the moral framework. Um, and what, I, what I, I think what intrigues me is the way that um, Stan Sakai is certainly not uh, uh, ignorant to those contradictions. And so much of Usagi Ojimbo comes to say that truly living with honor requires you to push that honor to its fullest extent. And that will bring you to uncomfortable you know, tensions, contradictions. This doesn't make any sense. So what do I do? And how do I handle myself <laughs> in that moment? Sometimes with a sword and sometimes with uh, taking the L, taking the fall. <laughs> um, which I love the complexity of that. And that is what to me feels comforting in these times when I feel so unmoored, right? Like trying to live right, but you don't know how because everything um, is out of control. <laughs> right and all you can control is that internal sense of your again your compass right um i see it a little bit too right now and i'm i've been enjoying um the book of boba fett uh show on disney plus uh we are you know at january 22nd i think four episodes into a nine episode run it seems like the momentum is building up for and i'm not gonna spoil too much in here uh, i'll just spoil a little bit from the first couple episodes so if you want to be absolutely pure of this you know skip ahead a little while but um i am loving it i am loving the book of boba fett and i know that um the broader public seems like they've been up and down about the show and maybe some of the exciting stuff for many people is is yet to come and maybe soon to come <laughs> <laughs> promising to come very soon but man I, I have really loved what's already been there so far um especially episode two all right and so so for background for if you if you don't know the show or or even if you just my perspective my take on it is um tamara morrison to tamara morrison right um who is the actor who has been playing the sort of you know Django Fett, Boba Fett, you know, all the clones and stuff like that, or they, you know, he's been really the model for all, all these clones within the Star Wars universe for, for, for a while now, um, is playing Boba Fett in the show, of course, and sort of reappeared after playing Django Fett in the prequel, uh, Star Wars prequels, it reappeared in, in, in The Mandalorian, I think in the second season. Sorry for spoiling a little of that. So, so Boba Fett reappears, and then now we have the show with... Um, Tamora Morrison as Boba Fett, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Fennec Shand, played by Ming-Na Wen, is sort of the companion there, and he is on Tatooine, um, in I forgot the name of the town, most most def most definitely, I think that's the name of the town, <laughs> and he's um and he's and he's really come back to take the role, the seat that um, belonged to Jabba the Hutt, who he um, was a bounty hunter in service of at one point and was betrayed by and so on. So um, we, we kind of get these flashbacks in the book of Boba Fett to a backstory of after he is, you know, famously swallowed up in a, um, <laughs> a, a, um, 
a sudden and uh and uh un you know unremarkable death in the uh giant uh, what do you call it the giant maw the mouth of the what's what's it called uh in star wars in the original trilogy um he makes his way out as we see in the beginning of the show and then he is um sort of found by captured by and in some senses in a very gradual process enters into the community of the um, the Tuscans, who on Tatooine, if you remember, if you're if you're like me, a lightweight Star Wars watcher, then maybe you don't remember. Tuscans are the sort of like desert sand creatures with the sort of you know strange mask that has the two eyes that look like binoculars and then the mouth thing, <laughs> and um, and they're sort of the classic Star Wars like stand-ins for the mysterious Lawrence of Olivier type sand people um and i mean that even if there's a maybe a derogatory sense with that term i mean that i take it advisedly because i think that part of the job that um a star wars show now has to do is reckon with the star wars itself you know and also what star wars was inspired by or what it continued or or you could say like the sort of cultural idiom the the soup that it swam in in order to tell its story because just like every other kid i grew up you know loving han solo loving luke skywalker loving the uh the the lightsaber and then and, and yoda and the whole thing but i saw as well that when i watched that <laughs> when i watched those movies and this included the prequels i did not look like the heroes that i admired I would, um, in my imagination, you know, run around the house with my pretend lightsaber, and then I'd catch a glimpse of a mirror and realize that I looked more like the villains. My family members looked more like the villains of those movies than like any of the heroes. And they were coded as such, you know, the, the accents on some of the more insidious um, bad guys or the um, supposed tribes and races and uh, species that looked... Uh, villainous were in some ways uh, you know looked like people from me and my hemisphere Um, and so you know Star Wars all sci-fi Dune right has some reckoning to do even when even if within the stories they were attempting to be in some sense you know anti-colonialist or questioning colonialism in some sense um, that storytelling still so often hinged on assumptions, portrayals, you know, um, orientalist sort of notions of the other, um, very much capitalized on that. And so much in so ingrained in our in our not you know, say our as as a Chinese American, right, in our cultural uh, uh, consciousness and even subconsciousness that we, we, we may not even notice the extent to which that shapes our sense of people who, you know, may live in sand, right, in the East. And, um, and so, I, and, and then, okay, enter Tamara Morrison, um, who, um, Maori from New Zealand, and grew up as a kid, a, a Maori warrior, you know, in a warrior culture, um, in an indigenous New Zealand community. Um, a community which has, um, f- from from my thin scant knowledge, right, a, a lot of um, 
protectiveness about what is very apparent in the ways that um, dominant colonialist, right, white societies will strip, you know, um, indigenous peoples of, you know, uh, culture, language, um, land, (laughs) uh, community, survivance, um, if they're allowed to. And so um, there is something in the Maori warrior that is um, that 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 persists and that is passed on with with care. Um, and so what's interesting in Book of Boba Fett um, in those flashbacks is you see Tim Morrison playing Boba Fett um, in a way entering and then becoming uh, included into this um this Tuscan community on Tatooine, which for decades now of Star Wars stories, right, tends to be cast as these sort of um, mysterious, quite dehumanized, often um, terrifying, uh, not really um, valuable cannon fodder (laughs) for our often pretty much white heroes. And and to take the Tuscans and to... um, to weave a story that is about sort of their beauty, their self-preservation as a people. And then ultimately, here's a little bit of the spoilers, for Boba Fett to um, not only ingratiate himself, but really to become um, one of them, right? To to become like kin to them. And then ultimately, you know, when uh, something involving a train, <laughs> he's, you know, initiated into the community the dance, uh, I think it's called the haka, um, something like that, is uh, a you know is borrowed, um, you know obviously with all due honor and respect from that the sort of Maori and other um, uh, indigenous sort of r- rituals and dance from that 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 part of the world from Tamara Morrison's uh, own people. Uh, that's so powerful to me. Because it is about the responsibility of you know your John Favreaus and your your Star Wars and and hey those are these are responsibilities of of narratives of all kinds that come out of our world now uh, to reckon with the past and to reckon with the present and to rectify um, you know the this past bounty hunter in this story is is graduating into the responsibilities and the contradictions of leading a crime syndicate a crime syndicate that should remind us you know whether it's godfather or whether it's like the tongs in chinatown right of the way that marginalized communities um often have these sometimes more corrupt and sometimes less corrupt but always honor bound right um structures right like like mafia or like tongs um within immigrant communities within diaspora communities and those power structures for better for worse are really there to compete with the otherwise totalizing um you know uh imperialist authorities right and um and that's what boba fett's up to (laughs) and it's freaking cool and i love tamara morrison and uh i think it's just a fascinating show but it, it, it's making me think again about like, what is the honor system within which we have to live in and 
negotiate and um, and do battle, right? Uh, when we are living in a world that um, that systems and structures are not working for us, yeah, um, I I think I I, re- I realize that that is what make made Star Wars so appealing to me as a kid. It is what makes stories like Usagi still meaningful to me now, um, especially when they resist oversimplification, right? Um, I, all this came to mind to me yet again when I was um, re- I presented uh, my daughter with a book that I've been saving for her for about seven years now. Um, when uh, I think it's 2013 or so, Jean Luen Yang and Sunny Liu, two of my favorite um, creators in comics, um, collaborated on a book called Shadow Hero. Do you know this book? Um, if you don't, you should definitely check it out. It came out from first second. And Shadow Hero is um, a super cool book. So I got a few copies. <laughs> I liked it so much that when it was um, published as a trade, I, I bought a bunch of copies, gave them as a gift, uh, gave, you know, for, for lots of people in my life. And I got a copy for my daughter. Um, I got, I had a chance to um, to talk to Jean Luen Yang before and had a, him, him sign it. Later had a chance to talk to Sunny Liu and had him sign it. In fact, I eventually was able to buy a page of the original art from that book. Shadow Hero is about um, a superhero that was actually created in the 40s. There was a Chinese-American comic creator in the 40s named Chu Hing, and he was uh, not allowed by his publisher to create a Chinese-American hero. And so in a sort of rebellious way, he created a shadow hero, a superhero whose face you never saw and uh, whose <laughs> complexion had to be sort of forced to be recolored extra pink so that you wouldn't think uh, he was actually Asian. And yet so much of who he was and what he said and what he did was um, sort of like subversively low-key, um, uh, you know, showing the Chu Hing's intention that he would be able to be a Chinese American superhero, right? Of course, this is post um, Chinese Exclusion Act and, you know, um, pre uh, new immigration uh, acts that acknowledged the racism of, um, of those laws. And so Shadow Hero takes place uh, in that era. It's got sort of that 1940s, um, you know, vibe with all kinds of allusions to Dick Tracy <laughs> and the Yellow Kid and all kinds of comics classic things but it's also you know rife with um, Chinese mythology and Chinatown um, situations and you know the mother of the hero taking a very active role in some ways you know bucking stereotypes and in some ways um, leaning into them and and just you know fun so fun such a good book Um, not the kind of book though you give a three-year-old which is what my daughter was but um, so I saved this, and recently my daughter, you know, had turned eleven, and uh, I, I thought she she's probably ready a little while ago, but I thought she was ready for the book, so we just read it together, and all kinds of um, goodness came flood, flooding back to me. She really enjoyed it too, um, because it just reminded me in these times again of why comics were always so meaningful to me, you know, um, they. Comics to me were trans trans 
quarters to the past, um, even to a racist past where um, me and my people might have been depicted a, a certain kind of way. But to be able to see those stories and then to transport them to the present and the world that I lived in the present, right? And then for um, Yang and Lu to be able to subvert or in, in some senses retell, reclaim, redeem um, things that were part of that history. And also just a lot of question, you know, a lot of questioning what is heroism and what does it mean? What does it mean to be empowered or to have powers? Um, both the original Chuhin creation and in the shadow hero, the, the superhero green turtle, right? The, the, the power that he's granted, the superpower that he's granted by this turtle spirit is, um, is an inability to be shot by bullets, right? I mean, it's like, so it's sort of like what they say about Captain America's shield to have a power that is about an invincibility, not about being able to conquer or stomp on others, right? Um, that is heroism of a, of a different kind than we often see or than our sort of basest natures um, resort to, right? Thinking about like a conquering hero or one that vanquishes their enemies as opposed to one that protects and defends. And... Um, and asking, is there a kind of, is it possible to be a hero in the complexities, the moral complexities, the grayness of the world? And is there a heroism that is not about the egotism and the narcissism of, you know, individualistic and capitalistic kind of notions of a frontier to conquer, right? Um, I, you know, I, I've been thinking a little bit about um, some of the political commentaries I was to a podcast with, um, with James Fowler. I think it was Derek Thompson's plain English podcast. He was talking to James Fallows about about Biden and the Biden administration and his sort of like um, waning popularity or his his steeply declining popularity. But but you know, just really saying that like stories in the news that are all about getting you know clicks, right? You need your get your clicks. Um, always cast the president as if they have all the agency in the world. But if you write a story or when you write a story that's really saying, you know, the president has little to do with what's happening in our country. They have little control over the things that actually affect us, you know, our economy and and um, and politics and, and, you know, the virus and all that kind of stuff. That it's it's all contextual and situational um, that uh, nobody wants to read those stories. And it's true. Like our minds are bent to these to stories that are about are about heroism and agency, not stories that are about, um, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what uh, all the complicated multiple forces. <laughs> That's just not interesting for us. Um, but I think that challenges us morally. Can we, can we tell stories where even with our inclination to focus on narratives of heroes, point to the what's necessary what's truly necessary for us to concentrate on the collective good uh which brings us finally 40 minutes into this podcast to aerosmith uh, if you don't know of aerosmith i think around 2004 um kurt Busiek, who's who's one of my favorite comics writers um kurt Busiek, uh together with um carlos pacheco Phenomenal Spanish artist. Um, 
and I'm, forgive me, I'm forgetting the name of the full creative team, but let me see if I can pull up the book itself, uh, the, the, the newest one. <laughs> but uh, I, think it, I think the original Aerosmith miniseries was something like six issues, something like that, and then later collected into trades and all that kind of stuff. A great comic. Um, I remember enjoying it um, long ago and then re-enjoying it when, you know, at any time I had a Kurt Busiek renaissance. Uh, maybe music might be most known for Avengers runs. Um, for me, it's Astro City. I have every issue of Astro City. Um, and even though that style of art is not necessarily always my cup of tea, I, I love Astro City. <laughs> I love it for the very reasons that I'm talking about that I, of why I find myself gravitating to superhero stories. It's, not, it's, it's the combination of a kind of moral clarity with a moral complexity. Aerosmith was the same way. It was kind of um, living in a kind of nostalgia for, you know, World War I and um, a different time when we knew things with a little bit more uh, certainty. Um, and then it pointed out that nothing was quite so certain. Um, Aerosmith is about Fletcher Aerosmith, the main character. And it's basically World War I in a world where magic is real. Sorry, I'm back. My daughter was playing a podcast in the background. Um, so you probably heard that was going on. That, by the way, was Braving the Elements, a super cool podcast about Avatar The Last Airbender, if you haven't checked that out uh, on all your podcast platforms. Uh, anyway, back to Aerosmith. So the original Aerosmith miniseries um, took uh, uh, Fletcher Aerosmith, who, you know, eager to enlist uh, and sign up to go, you know, fight the war um, in, in World War One. And um, and he's able to fly because they have are able to conjure a magical link with a small dragonette, um, and there are sorcerers who are you know creating the equivalent of of your um, I was gonna say nuclear bombs, but of course nuclear um, nuclear uh, uh, weaponry was not available in World War One. Yeah, but you get the picture. It's this uh, sense, and I I think one of the chapters of the original Aerosmith series was even entitled Atrocity, um, that in the midst of war, you your idealism meets against the um, the real atrocities that are inevitable in warfare, and um, all kinds of moral questions arise. So that's Aerosmith, um, really beautifully, lusciously drawn by uh, Carlos Pacheco. And so now we had this week, um, which would be the week of, let's say, what was Wednesday? January 19th, 18th, something like that. Um, we had um, uh, the return of Aerosmith. I think Kurt Busiek has worked out to either bring back or um, restart a lot of uh, uh, creator-owned titles, including, I think, Astro City graphic novels, including Aerosmith. I think there's going to be a continuation of Autumn Lands with Benjamin Dewey, which I also really loved. Um, some other things in the sort of Busiek creator-owned um, uh, arsenal <laughs> here, but um, bringing back Aerosmith, I think, was is is a, a sterling example of what Busick does. So Aerosmith Behind Enemy Lines is the new miniseries. Uh, not sure how long it is. Uh, just came out, and the first issue is fantastic. We're right back in the world, and um, I think uh, there's a little bit of a recap in the end pages uh, in the sort of column at the end. Um, Things, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, that kind of signature storytelling that Busick does so well, that Pacheco does so well. It's, um, e there's enough to grab those who are 
interested in, again, a bit of nostalgia and a bit of that sort of Captain America First Avenger sense of those times when war stories um, can provide a little bit of, you know, of, of moral clarity. And yet um, there's also the, the sort of moral ambiguity that, um, that real issues of war um, bring up. Uh, there are, you know, trolls and, um, and, like I said, dragons and, 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 and magicians. And um, even from the original Aerosmith series, um, Fletcher Aerosmith has this close bond with a troll who actually lived in his hometown. In a sense, represents um, maybe like if you were um, a German-American. And, um, and so there's distrust from people who are on, on uh, maybe your own side that they experience as part of this issue. All those complexities, you can tell there's so many different kind of angles that they can play up on. And the dimension of fantasy and magic, um, maybe for some people, like, that's, I'm out. Um, maybe you're also out on a samurai movie uh, story that uh, stars a rabbit. Um, but, um, you know, the function of those bits of fantasy is always to take us out so that they can take us back in, you know, the, the function of that sort of, um, um, un, non-real or magically real element is always to, um, be us to, is to make us see the real in starker terms. And I think that is going on. So <laughs> that's a long wind up to a very positive review. I am so glad to be back in this world. I remember feeling about Aerosmith and, and I think I still feel it whenever I revisit, um, that story, which I have a few times since it first came out, of knowing that I'm being pulled in, and this is why all of the long wind up to this, I'm being pulled in by some of those same things. I mean, I mean, Fletcher Aerosmith could be Luke Skywalker, right? <laughs> I'm being sort of brought into the same assumptions of what this story is, uh, attraction to an idealism, you know, uh, to to this kind of belief in a particular narrative and, and how important it is for us to fight for what is good and right, right? But the story does not leave the character, main character there, nor are we left there. And in fact, the more that we tell these stories and we have to confront again, and by the way, I'll, well, I'll say this for a minute later, uh, have to confront again that so many of these stories are built, woven upon a bed of... Um, again, assumptions about, you know, ways that the enemy or others look or act that uh, reflect, you know, um, white supremacy, colonialism, imperialism, then, uh, then these stories have to be retold and they have to be challenged the way that um, Book of Boba Fett, I, I, I think, is, is doing that in really intriguing ways. And I think Aerosmith is also doing that in cool ways. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see what comes of it. Um, it's not just nostalgia, y'all. <laughs> so read Aerosmith with me, okay? Tell me what you're thinking about it. Um, I think that Pacheco's art is also still so good. Maybe even better than it was before. Um, and we have the talents of Jose Rafael Fonteres, Fonteris as inker and Jose Villarubia as colorist. And uh, Comicrafts Tyler Smith and Jimmy Betancourt 
lettering and design from Image, Image Comics. All right, <laughs> let me take a pause. It's been a long stretch. And then I'll talk about what else, some other things I've been reading lately that I would love for you to let me know if you have any thoughts and opinions on. And we're getting going. This uh, comics fill this train is rolling on. Okay. Hi, so what you've been reading lately? <laughs> What's been on your list? Um, mine has included a lot of good stuff and then a lot of uh, mediocre stuff. <laughs> but back on that note of Aerosmith, if you um, if you like Aerosmith for the same reasons I do, I wonder if you saw Discipline by Dash Shaw last year. Um, who co-published Discipline? Was it New New York Review of Comics? Possibly. I'm gonna look it up. Um, Discipline is Dash Shaw's book where um he took words. Yes, New York Review books. He took words that uh, were often fragments of real uh, language, um, and uh, told the story uh, a Civil War era story about um, a young man who is uh, um, who belongs to a Quaker community. Quakers are, uh, of course, um, <laughs> by religious conviction, anti-war. Um, but uh, the main character feels um, a burning, an obligation to get involved in the Civil War for the Union. Uh, and so um, <laughs> uh, sneaks away from his family, joins the army, and a lot of the book is in the form of communications between uh, the main character and his, I think, his sister. Um, and, uh, and you know, he sort of recounts the experience of being at war. And I think the, um, and, and we flash to the scenes of this Quaker community. You know, I've always had a lot of um, admiration for Quakers, um, particularly in their pacifism. Uh, you know, it's it's not soft pacifism at all. It's pacifism with conviction and um, and often with sacrifice. And uh, and so um, the kind of dialectic of you know uh, strident anti-war um, faith and then um, this belief that uh, you you sometimes must go and fight to do um, what's right, what's needed uh, in the world. Um, yeah, it just raises a lot of interesting questions. I think uh, Dash Shaw, if you know, uh, cartoonist, graphic novelist, Dash Shaw's style. Um, uh, they have cosplayers and uh, bottomless belly button. Is that what it's called? Um, has a really interesting stringy style <laughs> that um, that in the in this book looks like the I don't know wood carvings art of that era or things that would maybe be found in like just kind of like a sketchbook. Um, but it's just also, you know, carefully drawn line, pen line depictions of, you know, moments and scenes of that era from, you know, the Quaker church, you know, building to the battlefield. Um, super interesting. I really loved that book. One of the best things I read last year, um, which I actually read this year, <laughs> half last year, half this year. It, it, it just brings so much more... I don't know, I would say like humanity level um, reflectiveness to this question of war, um, which is going to make me go somewhere very different. 
Uh, I have been also reading Action Comics, uh, which Philip Kennedy Johnson has been writing uh, with, a, I think, a stable of artists. i got to look this up, too. But um, I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, much of this off of the DC3 folks. Uh, if you don't listen to DC3, check that out on the Multiversity Network of Podcasts at multiversitycomics.com. Where Brian, Vince, and Zach have been um, have been digging action comics and the run lately, where Philip Kennedy Johnson and artists that I'm about to name um, have been uh, telling this story of Superman, um, who is uh, weakened by some stuff that's going on, and you know, there's all these sort of like hints and and premonitions and foretellings of of death from Jonathan, who's coming back from the future, his son. So John Kent is currently the uh, super cool Superman on Earth right now. Um, Superman has taken it upon himself to be Superman um, and to not sit passively by. While, uh, you know, while Mongol, um, who is the Lord of War World, um, oppressively enslaves various um and and decimates commits genocide with various um societies uh and and planets and and worlds um but takes on himself and brings with him the authority which is pretty dope um to go confront mongol and take him down and um a more vulnerable clark um must uh try to to defeat so in philip kennedy johnson fashion it's you know all set up staged uh, with a huge run-up of many months to this, you know, vast um, story. Um, seems cool. I like it. Um, I have to admit that there is something in the um, uh, something in the vibe of the way that Mongol looks that reminds me of some of those things I just said earlier in this episode, um, you know, in the way that World World war world is cast and and so and so can you do a world war world saga without um at least posing some questions about what it means to liberate a, a place and what it means to show um the utter evil and surely mongol is evil uh and depravity and um and you know um insatiable conquest uh of those and and and, and maybe not um point the finger back <laughs> at uh maybe other conquering societies um you know again here's where superman is at his best when he is living not by what the odds are um and here certainly seems like feels like the odds are stacked against him which is really hard and rare to do in a superhero story um daniel sempier by the way (laughs) one of a few artists but uh maybe one of the main artists um but uh, you know, can, how do you how do you um, how do you make Superman have to live by this principle of um, I may not be strong. I'm stronger than everything, but I may not be stronger than this. Um, but but I'm you know for me, it's not about my superior strength. It's actually about my identification with humanity and um, and my willingness to sacrifice myself for the greater good. Um, that's the best Superman when you can get him in right in that pocket. And, uh, and we seem to be there in this world world story. So I'm into it. 
despite my reservations and questions about how we tell these kinds of stories that are redolent of, you know, past constructions of villainy that are um, so clearly associated with foreignness and otherness. Um, yeah. Action Comics. Check it out. <laughs> I've also been hanging around Amazing Spider-Man because, uh, because, because, because this creative team, they got, they call they call it the Beyond Board, and if you haven't been reading um, Spider-Man or don't know what's going on, um, wow, what a team of writers. Um, you got Zeb Wells, you who will be continuing to write Spider-Man, um, and who wrote Hellions and lots of cool stuff. Uh, you got Patrick Gleason, who is sort of an art lead with, among some really great artists, Sarah Pacelli and Pichelli, sorry, and um, Michael Dowling and stuff like that, a bunch of artists. Uh, you got Kelly Thompson, you got Solid and Ahmed, you got Cody Ziegler, who if you haven't heard the name, uh, know the name, Cody Ziegler, writing for Marvel TV, I believe, and and doing more comic stuff, and, and, and just a wonderful, super fun, smart um, writer. So you got this team, who are the Beyond Board, and then you got the exciting thing that we've all come to Spider-Man for, which is Ben Riley, the Scarlet Spider, <laughs> the clone saga peter parker uh no i don't know about you but i i did not i did not come to spider-man to see the clone of spider-man and yet perfectly timed for the <laughs> spider-man no way home explosion of blockbuster interest <laughs> in spider-man you uh you know you just watch the movie and you go oh yeah i like spider-man let me go to the comic shop and let's see if i can pick up some wow who is this this is not spider-man <laughs> um but I would say I would defend the move on a couple of counts. One, I would say that, no, the movies have not brought people flocking into comic shops. So why worry about that? I would say to comics creators, don't sit there and try to, quote unquote, you know, capitalize on interest. That doesn't, that's not going to come. Um, and, uh, but maybe, maybe more importantly, I actually think that the things that make uh, many of us... Um, really feel a kind of like jolt of excitement at Spider-Man No Way Home might actually make us feel very similarly about this uh, Beyond story centering on on Ben Riley. Um, what it is, is that um, Beyond, this corporation that has taken over Parker Industries and all um, associated licenses or whatever, they, <laughs> they have um, sort of, you know, uh, netted um, Ben Riley, who was the clone of Peter Parker um, from the clone saga back in the 90s. Um, and they have made him their corporate sponsored uh, uh, Spider-Man, right? On their corporate leash and uh, with the resources that, uh, with strings attached, that um, make it, you know, possible for him and uh, his wife, Janine, who who was, I think, um, in, imprisoned to, to be able to live a good life. Um, but Ben Riley is um, is wrestling with the, you know, the the questions that that character has always kind of been about. Um, if I am a clone, am I me? Are these memories mine? Are are these relationships with Aunt May, etc., mine? You know, or are they just Peter's? Am I just a stand-in? Um, but the the <laughs> you know the clone, like the multiverse, is uh, an interesting um, uh, device to really think about these questions of identity and belonging and so on and i think spider-man no way home 
is a lot of things. I'm not going to spoil too much about it, except maybe what by now you've probably already heard. Um, it, you know, that is very much about um, the, 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 the sort of brotherhood of those who have walked in the similar or same shoes, how these little differences in their lives um, maybe might give them a wisdom that if they could combine it, you know, um, would help one of them get through um, the unthinkably difficult. And I think um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's something where those of us, <laughs> Spider-Man of a certain age, that's what I was calling the piece that I was writing on the Substack. Um, those of us who have a hint of nostalgia or maybe even a sense of, oh, I'm getting old and <laughs> and I'm losing my relevance. I'm soon to be forgotten or perhaps canceled. <laughs> um, to There's an appeal to these stories that say, that remind us that, hey, if we can actually sort of be present for the actual crisis that our younger siblings are going through, then perhaps, perhaps we can still inspire, you know, perhaps we still have a role and then to be re-inspired ourselves. I think Ben Riley and the vestiges of the 90s that are all coming back in fashion and music and in um, so many things, uh, because 40-year-olds like me <laughs> are creating so much of the pop culture and you know not all the beyond board is of my generation some i think are a different relationship to my generation but um anyway there is something in that storytelling uh and in the question of what whether us who have been found out to be clones (laughs) to be illegitimate might actually have um some authenticity and purpose um, if we can just get over ourselves, that I think is is intriguing to me, and that I see going on a little bit in, uh, in Amazing Spider-Man in the Beyond storyline. So check it out. Oh, and by the way, this week also. Um, so this week was issue uh, eighty-six of that of that Beyond um, Spider-Man. I think it's triple shipping. It's like three times a month. Um, but this one, uh, issue 86, written by Zeb Wells, among the rota- rotating cast of, of writers and drawn by Mike Dowling. Uh, check that out. It's a, it's, a, it's a pivot point, so it's a good time to be checking in with that series, however you are reading it. Um, and at the same time, a, <laughs> I mean, a th- talk about throwback, J.M. DeMatisse. DeMatteis is how you say that name. <laughs> J.M. DeMatteis writing uh, a Ben Riley Spider-Man miniseries. Uh, he is fully back ladies and gentlemen, and um, drawn by David Baldian, whose art style brings something super fun and cool. And I would even venture to say fresh, um, you know, fresh off of Baldian's work on X Factor, um, which was very fun and fresh, uh, to the Ben Riley character and to the story written by um, legend J.M. DeMatteis. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that's pretty good. That's good stuff. Um, what else I've been reading? Um, I keep reading Catwoman Lonely City. I keep reading Shang-Chi. Um, good stuff there. Um, Walter Mosley and Tom Riley, The Thing, super good. Um, some stuff away from the big two. I've been reading, uh, uh, there's a new, I think it's a Vault or Aftershock series. We, we Ride Titans, about kaiju or something or uh mechs 
<laughs> that was pretty good. Um, yeah, it's a whole bunch of series. Like Search for Who, I think, has been uh, better than critics thought. Um, but I, I guess I'll turn my my attention to a couple of books. Um, sorry, actually, a couple of comics <laughs> you can find on Substack. Um, and I'll talk a little bit that uh, I have been working on the comic syllabus.substack.com. Um, and, you know, with it taking a break with the podcast, I took a break with the, the Substack as well. But I'm eager to roll up my sleeves and get back into that and continue to talk, uh, to continue to write there about um, comics uh, at large as well as comics on Substack. And so in the month that has passed, a lot of great developments and then a lot of gradual developments, which is cool too. Um, you know, the, the Jeff Lemire Fish Fly series has continued on. That's great. I like it. Chip Zdarsky's um, Public Domain and Kaptara have also been going going on. Um, we're getting more um, events and hints and backstory from the Three Worlds, Three Moons crew of Jonathan Hickman and, and Mike Del Mundo and, and company um, over there. And uh, but, but some things that have made a, a, a splash for me, uh, strong debuts. Um, Molly Knox Oster Tags in the Telling is the name of, of Oster Tags Substack, um, has been serializing a story called Darkest Night. It is good. It is, um, it is Oster Tag, you know, it's, uh, it's black and white with tiny hints of color. It's, um, you know, in the sort of, it's drawn, unlike a lot of these Substack comics, very specifically in that web comics, you know, vertical scroll style, um, makes the most of those, takes advantage of those, I think better than a lot of the other, anything else that I've seen on Substack. Um, and Ostertag is doing, you know, Ostertag's style of original graphic novel, which uh, she wrote so much about, about how to do it um, on in the telling. It was, it was kind of a, you know, started out with a learn how to make graphic novels um, series of posts, but now it's serializing uh, this comic. It's really great. Um, it's about Megs Herrera, lives in um, Joshua Tree, um, and there's an acknowledgement to the setting in Joshua Tree as well as um, as to the original inhabitants, um, uh, the indigenous peoples of that area, the Serrano and Chemehoivi, Mojave, and Kahuya. I'm sure I pronounced those incorrectly. <laughs> but so um, very steeped in the particular place, but um, telling the story of Megs and... Um, some of the characters uh, won't give up too much away, but it's it, you know if you're going to subscribe to a, a Substack to get good comics, I really recommend um, Molly Knox Oster Tags in the Telling. It's a great Substack um, with a good comic going in it. Um, another one you should check out, and then you can decide whether to subscribe because the comics are actually available for free subscribers as well. Is Solid and Ahmed's um, Copper Bottle. Now, I expressed some impatience <laughs> in the initial months of this whole Substack thing because uh, we didn't hear anything from Copper Bottle after some initial announcements. Um, but uh, I've had to eat those words uh, happily. I'm glad, glad that I've been able to eat those words because Copper Bottle has been coming strong. There's been two series that have been serialized sort of every week. They kind of are alternating. One is called Terror War um, with David Acosta on art. And... Although I, I gotta say that some of the things in that in the art 
that I first saw from that series. It's called Terror War. It looks like a book that would be called Terror War. Um, some of the things in the art where I was like, ah, do I want to see, you know, a big gun and, uh, uh, and you know, somebody with a face that's express with an expression that's a- appropriate for holding a big gun. <laughs> but uh, but it's a, it's sort of futuristic, you know. It um, sort of ties in these questions of who is a terrorist, what what does it mean to be in, in, involved in terrorism um in in a society in a sort of you know darkly um uh oppressive society uh pretty good so far two chapters um like i said written by saladin ahmed uh, art by dave acosta inks by jay lyston colors by walter Pereira, letters by sean lee and (laughs) and copper bottle has also been serializing uh, and again, oh, and all these comics are free for free subscribers. You don't have to be a paid subscriber to see to read these. So check it out at Copper Bottle on Substack. Um, but uh, but uh, you get lots of great behind the scenes stuff if you are a supporter, and you get to support creators uh, with the really trying to platform creators of color and um, uh, from non dominant communities. Love that. Uh, the other series is called Star Signs, and it is uh, by Ahmed and artist Megan Levins with Kelly Fitzpatrick, Sean Lee and edited by Heather Antos. And this is a cool one with a very different vibe. Um, it's really vibrant colors, um, something about um, star signs, <laughs> zodiac, and, uh, uh, you know, the secret uh, society and uh, people with powers on a mission. We've got three chapters so far. Um, seems like a lot of fun, and I'm enjoying it. Um, deeper reviews with more substance can be found on the comic syllabus substack where i'll be reviewing these in more depth in the coming weeks but uh, you can check those out now and read with me yeah and let me know if you're checking out other substack um substacks from comics creators um you know it's been interesting i i, I think i still feel about scott snyder a, a lot of affection just for how much enthusiasm that guy has um and he's sort of brought his, that enthusiasm right into his his Substack, um, our best jacket, and uh, you don't get comics there, but you know I see the the stuff that he's working on for Comicsology Originals, and uh, you know I've I've been mixed about those books. Um, haven't hugely loved We Have Demons with um, with Scott Snyder and uh, Greg Capullo, but I think Clear with Francis Manipal is super cool, uh, and that Night of the Ghoul with Fran- Francesco Francovia is super scary um, those are pretty cool um but just i mean I, I i haven't even listened to most of them i would say but the lessons that uh scott snyder has put on in this sort of massive online course where you know it's a lot of lengthy monologuing but but then so is this podcast <laughs> so is the comic syllabus but uh you know scott snyder has just so much enthusiasm for his, you know, whatever subject. Recently, he did a class on villains and, uh, you know, how you write villains. And he's got opinions and he's got uh, stories and perspectives. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun um, for anyone who thinks about creative process and storytelling. So, all right. So that's some of the goings-ons on Substack. Um, if you want to know more, make sure you sign up to the Comic Syllabus Substack where I will be trying to cover and talk about those for free and paid subscribers. Last book that I want to talk about is um, actually one from Boom. It's called Buckhead. Uh, You heard me right. I said Buckhead. 
Uh, Buckhead number one and two uh, are out. I think two came out last week or maybe mid-January. Um, and uh, if you haven't checked out this book, um, it is uh, drawn by George Camadice, which is what drew me to the book initially. Um, if I'm saying that name right, Camadice was the artist on The Black Ghost, which was also from Comixology Unlimited Originals, I should say, uh, which was written by Alex Segura. It came out last year. A really cool book. The Black Ghost, and I really like his style. I think George Kamadias, um has got, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, he gets better with everything that I see he, him drawing, but there is um, a seed to his style. There's a there's a kind of, um, you know, animation-inspired, um, I would say even a kind of Darwin Cook-ish style, maybe without the sort of refined, you know, Darwin Cook um levels that you know i think i could see coming is getting to with uh with with every sort of step where um their storytelling is more striking and more um legible and more um impactful with sort of every page that i see coming and 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 uh in buckhead um Camadias is really getting to use that um, the, that art style in a story that seems to fit it super well. I, I really like it. I think it's a great match. Um, and it's a story that is playful with a little bit of air of creepy, but not, uh, you know, the creepiness offset a lot by this very, um, you know, animated and fun and approachable style that Camadias brings. Uh, story is written by uh, a writer named Shobo, and uh, S-H-O-B-O. And um, Shobo is also the writer of, a f- of an upcoming um, image series coming out in February called New Masters. And uh, Shobo and um, uh, I think their last name is Coker. Shobo Coker is, um, I believe, from Nigeria. And Shobo Coker and uh, Shof Coker collaborate on New Masters, which is that upcoming book from Image. And they were the winners of the uh, Creators for Creators grant that was, you know, set up by, um, uh, I think, various comics artists, um, which is super cool. And um, and you know the the this new master series coming from Image looks pretty promising too. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Shobo is the writer of of Buckhead, and you know uh, they originate from um, from Nigeria, I believe, um, definitely somewhere in West Africa. And they bring a lot of that um, perspective and that sort of um, that bent. Uh, there's an Afrofuturism and an Afrofantasy bent to their stories. And I think they belong to a studio that is, you know, writing and producing for video games and comics and things like that. It's called Hairbrain Schemes Studio. Um, I think it's a studio. And uh, and so it, it, Buckhead is about. Um, uh, a, a character um, who finds himself a kid, a kid in school uh, in Buckhead, Washington, um, which Buckhead, Washington is, is as it sounds, a sort of suburban, um, smaller Washington town. And, um, and, the, and the main character's name is Toba, I think. Toba Arikunle. And Toba is, um, you know, an immigrant uh, from Nigeria. And he's come with his family, um, and he lives now with his mom, Wole, uh, sorry, his mom, Bola, um, and his father's name is Wole, but his father has disappeared. And actually, at the very beginning of the book, we see Wole and Bola and Bola's sister, Meredith, and they're in Nigeria, 
and they really set up that there's something going on with um, with being able to scan African artifacts for something, right? And being able to recreate them in some sense. So we get a short scene with that going on. And then we join Toba in um, in Buckhead, where he goes to school. He has to go to school, a new, new kid in school, right? And he has a friend, Josue, and a small group of other friends that he makes quickly. And there's definitely strange things afoot in Buckhead <laughs> Washington because as they're walking to school or at, while they're at school all kinds of weird things are going on um, with uh, you know people people appearing and disappearing uh, people sort of freezing uh, people having a, a weird sort of tattoo that's supposed to be a birthmark that looks very clearly like a symbol on their necks um, and uh, you know his own mother and things that go on with Josue anyway I won't give away too many of the mysteries um, and they all do lead by the second issue to some clarity about what's going on. Um, I, I think it's promising. It's a really exciting, interesting series. I think there's definitely something here about the appropriation of, um, of you know, a lie of worlds and communities, both purposefully from people in order to preserve or maybe to create or to bring into virtual reality um, possibilities and our virtual reality future or present or whatever, um, you know, all of the, the worlds of the past that we want to preserve before they are disappeared or taken or whatever. Um, and questions about that going wrong, questions about um, technology um, taking hold and, um, and really controlling, controlling us. Um, last year, a couple of the animated movies that we saw as a family, Mitchell versus the Machines, you probably know, um, on Netflix, um, but uh, family, my daughter and I, and, and and my wife, recently saw Ron's Gone Wrong on Hulu. Did you did you see that? That was the hardest phrase to say. I've said all day. Ron's Gone Wrong on Hulu <laughs> was an animated uh, movie. Is an ad- new animated movie, and it's just all about kind of technologies run amok and infiltrating our lives and taking over our minds and how. Again, I like about these stories that it's young people who may be susceptible to these, but also young people who have the the smarts and the ability to get outside of and see what's happening to us and then to, to try to save us all, do something about that, um, e- either from <laughs> us old folks who clueless to what's going on or other young folks who may be mired in it or people who are so driven by capitalism and greed that they keep pushing that envelope um (laughs) i'm interested in buckhead uh i think it's fun i think you should check it out uh, from boom um and that's it my voice is starting to go (laughs) i was had a whole bunch of other stuff interested in talking about but this is enough you've had enough uh listen the comic syllabus is going to keep trying this year to um perhaps invite on some co-hosts and conversation partners and maybe set up some interviews continue to try to engage with um, uh, with learning how to be a, a writer myself, uh, learning how to write about comics, learning how to create, express with comics, learning how to teach comics and teach with comics. Um, I'll be doing that in the podcast too. And, uh, and thank you for sticking with it. If you've listened this far, it is a miracle. I, I don't know how you did that. Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> I crave your feedback. Um, I, I, I value doing this even if it's just a very small number of you um, thank you for listening thank you for giving me feedback and um, I hope you keep reading and I hope you're staying safe and well and um, yeah 
Take care. Okay. <laughs>